Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Two years ago, a Massachusetts man was arrested and charged with attempting to commit an act of terrorism. The young man is still in custody. His mother can't understand why. He is very compassionate. He has a deep respect and reverence for all living things. I'm sure some people are out there saying, yeah, right, but he literally would not hurt a fly. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at the fight against domestic terrorism after the marathon bombings. We'll also meet a father and a farmer who faces deportation. What I don't understand is that they don't let me go in front of the judge, give me another chance. And we'll visit an art exhibit that grapples with U.S. immigration policy. We'll also head out to sea to crack an illegal eel trafficking ring to help small fishermen off of Martha's Vineyard and to figure out how to bury someone at sea. So I went to the Boston Public Library. I studied it going back 200 years. Let's gussy it up, polish it up, and let's bring it to today's technology. But as we'll learn, it's not that easy. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. On July 4th, 2015, Alex Ciccolo of Adams, Massachusetts, made national news. The FBI tells us it has broken up a homegrown terror plot by an unlikely suspect, the son of a captain in the Boston Police Department. He was allegedly a follower of ISIS and the Boston Marathon bombers. Ciccolo was taken into federal custody, charged with attempting to commit domestic terrorism. His father was not just a captain in the Boston PD, he was also a first responder at the Marathon bombings in 2013. And he was the one who tipped off federal officials about his son's obsession with ISIS. That led to an FBI sting where Ciccolo described to a government informant his plans to explode pressure cooker bombs in a crowded place, just like the Marathon bombings. Now, two years later, Alex Ciccolo is still in federal custody. New England Public Radio's Jill Kaufman has this story from the vantage point of his mother, who's kept a very low profile until now. Alex Ciccolo's parents divorced when he was in grade school. For a while, he lived with his mother on Cape Cod. When he was about 14, he moved closer to Boston, and he lived with his father and stepmother. There were ongoing custody battles, each parent accusing the other of doing a poor job raising their son. Can I get you anything to drink? Oh, great, thank you. I'm good. I stopped it. Chicola's mother, Shelley McInnes, now lives in Peru, Massachusetts. I've only been in the Berkshires for a little over seven years. She works the overnight shift in a substance abuse clinic. She says her son had his own struggles with addiction, and he did have a problem with anger, McInnes says, but he would not hurt innocent people. He is very compassionate. He has a deep respect and reverence for all living things. I'm sure some people are out there saying, yeah, right, but he literally would not hurt a fly. That's what McInnes chooses to believe, she says. And if people want to call her naive or stupid, they still can't take that belief away from her. Yet when Chicolo was first arrested and he stabbed a nurse at the jail with a pen, that shocked her. She thinks he was disoriented. It was halfway through Ramadan. Chicolo, who'd converted to Islam a few years ago, was fasting. And he regrets that. He really has remorse for that. And that stabbing is the one wrong act McInnes directly acknowledges her son committed. Still, She's relieved he's not on the street. I'm so glad that 
he's in prison prison rather than going out somewhere if he were planning to do that, I don't know, and getting killed. McGinnis is leaning heavily on her Catholic faith, giving all this trouble up to God, she says. And she's learning about her son's beliefs. Several books on Islam are piled on the table in the compact A-frame house she shares with her second husband. It takes about an hour from here to get to Springfield, and it's a drive they take for almost every one of Chicolo's appearances in federal court. She visits her son in prison in Rhode Island about twice a month. We actually get um, as much time as we want. We d- there are visiting hours. Um, they're different during the weekday and, and during the weekend. Since Chicolo was first arrested on July 4th, 2015, quite a bit has been reported about his early life. According to court records obtained by several media outlets, in his teens, Chicolo was suspended from school for threatening another student. And then something happened at his father's home in 12th grade. Things got a little physical, McGinnis says. And Alex, you know, in anger, I guess it, it got pretty aggressive. So then his father decided to call the ambulance and he was placed in the psychiatric unit. After Chicolo got out, McGinnis says he refused to take medication. He dropped out of high school, left his father's home, stayed at friends' houses, slept in his car. He was drinking and doing drugs. McGinnis says she knew people who ran a Buddhist peace pagoda in New York State, and her son agreed to go there. He found a mentor and stayed in New York for about a year. And eventually, he made his way to Western Mass, not far from his mother. Yeah, he he worked little odd jobs here and there. I think it was construction or landscaping. Two weeks before the arrest, McGinnis says her son was reclusive and anxious. He told her everything was fine, but she says he was in despair and angry. About the situation here in the U.S. and the Middle East and around the world, what was happening to his Muslim brothers and sisters, getting killed, how they're being treated. According to the U.S. Attorney's Office, Chicolo is a supporter of ISIS. He's accused of attempting to provide the terrorist group with material support. And physical evidence against Chicolo? He received firearms from a person who was cooperating with law enforcement. Several partially constructed Molotov cocktails were found in his apartment. And in recorded conversations, Chicolo describes plans to commit acts of terrorism, including setting off explosives where a large number of people congregate, like college cafeterias. McGinnis won't condemn her son for any of these alleged plans. She has empathy for him. That is being a mother, she says. Without condoning or justifying it. Is there any way you think, you know, with the allegations, is there any way you think that he thought that he was doing something good by taking the alleged steps that he took to build a bomb? Absolutely. There's no doubt in our minds that he felt that it was his duty and in the eyes of God to just to, to step forward and, and try to do his part. Do something. And I think he didn't know what to do. And I think that if he had some confusion or second thoughts, or I think maybe it got to a point that maybe he didn't know who to go to. In the past, McGinnis says her son told her everything. But she says she had no clue about any of his alleged plots. And whatever her ex-husband knew... McGinnis says going to the FBI was the wrong way to help their son. People that you see being executed are criminals. In a videotaped interview with the FBI in the hours after his arrest, Chocolo is sitting in a cubicle, kitty corner to a desk. One leg is crossed over the other. When the agent asks Chocolo what he thinks about ISIS, Chocolo doesn't answer at first. They're doing a good thing? Yeah. Yeah, they are. 
they're doing a good thing. Chicolo told the agent ISIS will only kill people who fight them. That claim has been disproved repeatedly by the group's attacks in public spaces, cafes, concerts, offices, places of worship. I'm happy to answer a few questions, folks. A couple of weeks after that FBI interview, Chicolo's attorney, David Hoos, stood outside federal court in Springfield. One of the things that's hard to convey is uh, the depth of this young man's feeling towards his uh, mother and stepdad. And uh, um, as I said in court, uh, he would not do anything to put them at risk or uh, in danger. When asked by a reporter how he thought Chicolo's father developed the belief his son was a danger to others, who said this. We all have children, and our children sometimes uh, fall far from the tree. And who said he couldn't really elaborate more than that. Thanks very much, folks. That's Jill Kaufman reporting. Reporter Trevor Aronson of The Intercept has been investigating the connections between domestic terrorism charges that have led to 800 arrests since 9-11. He told Jill how Alex Ciccolo fits into this mix. Certainly he was looking at ISIS propaganda online, was watching videos, was posting on Facebook, claiming to be, you know, as if he was part of ISIS, as if, as if he was like training with ISIS. He purchased pressure cookers and he also had Molotov cocktails. You know, there are a lot of questions of whether or not someone like Alexander Chocolo would have done what he's accused of doing had he been left to his own devices. In the FBI's view, that that's the trade-off, right? They don't want another attack. And so, you know, with some encouragement in the sting operation he did, you know, from a family and defense lawyer perspective, this was someone who was manipulated by the FBI and basically became kind of a scapegoat in the war on terror. The Intercept's database shows that some defendants, unlike Chicolo, have clear connections to ISIS and that often those defendants can turn into informants. People who were prosecuted and convicted in sting operations would often get decades in prison. Um, so Alexander Chocolo, for example, his case is still pending, but should he take this to trial and get convicted, he could go to jail for 30 years, maybe even more. If he takes a plea, he's probably looking at you know 12 to 15 years. Based on the evidence that we've seen and what my reporting has so far indicated, Alexander doesn't actually know real terrorists. Like he doesn't, he wasn't in contact with real terrorists in Syria. He doesn't have anything of value. So he's going to get the maximum statute under the law. Someone who does actually have connections to Al Qaeda or ISIS or other terrorists and is found guilty ends up not going to prison because they become cooperating witnesses. So the irony here is that the more dangerous you are, the more terrorists you know, the less likely you are to go to prison. And this gets at the the way that the FBI has prosecuted the war on terror and how it's similar to the way it's prosecuted the drug war and the war on the mafia before that. You know, when it prosecutes people, anything in the federal system that you can trade is valuable. That's Intercept reporter Trevor Aronson talking to Jill Kaufman. Go to nextnewengland.org for more of their reporting on the Chocolo case. Coming up, keeping fishing accessible for the little guy. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. The Massachusetts fishing industry in recent years has taken a beating with stiff regulations and expensive fishing permits, making it tough for small fishermen to stay above water. 
Now there's a nonprofit in Martha's Vineyard that wants to help by acquiring fishing permits and leasing them at subsidized rates to emerging fishermen. WBUR's Simone Rios has her story. Out on the docks of Menemsha on Martha's Vineyard, Wes Brighton rigs up lobster pots he plans to set the next day. In an ideal world, he'd also be fishing for other species, like scallops and groundfish. But he can't afford the expensive government-issued permits that would grant him the fishing rights. They've turned a public resource into a commodity, and they haven't limited the people who can own that commodity to commercial fishermen. And so a fisherman who wants to go catch scallop quota inside of a small community like we have here on Martha's Vineyard can't access that without coming up with a ton of money. The fishing boats and docks of Menemsha present a postcard view of Martha's Vineyard. But there's more to the picture. Every time you look somewhere, you're losing dock space on our own town dock, which has always been allocated to commercial fishing. And uh, just recently, we've lost a big chunk to a charter boat. And, uh, you know, it's up to us to keep this fight. Because if we lose our tradition, we lose our heritage. And uh, that's something we just can't let happen. At 36, Brighton is typical of the latest generation of small fishermen, struggling to stay afloat in the era of privately held fishing rights. He decided something had to be done. The question was, how do we get permits? And because it's out of reach for the majority of young fishermen to acquire multi-million dollar or multi-hundred thousand dollar quotas, we needed to find a catalyst to make that work. The only way to do that that I could see is uh, through a nonprofit permit bank. In 2011, Brighton and two colleagues formed the Martha's Vineyard Fishermen's Preservation Trust. It's got just one employee, but it has big plans to jumpstart the island's fishing industry with its permit bank. In order to fish for species like sea scallops and cod, fishermen need to hold permits that allow them to catch a certain amount. They can also lease permit rights from their owners. Under the permit bank model, a nonprofit pools money together to buy fishing permits, then leases the rights to small-scale fishermen at deep discounts. Fisherman John Black says that could jumpstart his business. I've lived on the island my whole life. I'm a commercial fisherman. Um, I don't have, you know, a six-figure bank account to go just scoop up a permit whenever I need to. The Martha's Vineyard Trust recently purchased two fishing permits. One is for nearly a million dollars worth of sea scallops. The other is for conch, scup, and sea bass, valued at $50,000. John Black wants to lease out that permit for a year. The Fisherman's Trust is still deciding exactly how much to charge and how to determine which fishermen get to lease permits. But Black believes he's an ideal candidate. At 37 years old, he has experience as a fisherman, and he just needs access to more permits to become self-sufficient. This will essentially jumpstart my business. I've just bought a boat. You know, I've been on deck for over a decade now. And um, hopefully the idea is that if I lease these permits off the permit bank within, say, three or four years, I have the money now and the capital now myself to go out and purchase my own permit. Permit banks are not new to the North Atlantic fishing grounds. And some in the industry are fiercely critical. Permit banks are designed as an antidote to industry consolidation. But some are among the largest consolidators. That's why Brett Tolley of the fishermen's advocacy group Northwest Atlantic Marine Alliance says permit banks need to be watched closely. In some cases, permit banks are providing a really important service. 
by ensuring affordable access to community-based fishermen. That said, there are also permit banks whose goals and by design are generating large amounts of profit in the hundreds of thousands of dollars with no end in sight. Supporters counter that revenue allows a trust to continue to invest in small fishermen. But Tolly says the money doesn't necessarily trickle down. The first and largest permit bank in the region is the Cape Cod Fisheries Trust. That trust holds more than $7 million in ground fish and sea scallop permits. It leases those fishing rights to more than 100 fishermen on the Cape and Islands. I think it's been really a pretty successful program. Seth Rollbein of the Cape Cod Trust says he's hopeful fish stocks that have been depleted will bounce back. And that with the help of permit banks, fishermen will be ready. It's a very hard time for the fishing community in general. And what we're trying to do is keep people on the water so that when these stocks rebound, which we believe they will, people are going to be in much better shape. That goes not only for the current generation of fishermen, Rollbein says, but also for generations to come. That's Simone Rios reporting. So what's slippery, see-through, and goes for $1,300 a pound? If you live in coastal Maine, you might know the answer. Glass eels, so-called because they're translucent, are American eels in their juvenile phase. The price per pound of these animals jumped from $100 in 2009 to almost $900 in 2011, then up to over $1,800 in 2012. The catch is destined for Asia, where the eels are farmed and later harvested for sushi. And if you're in the eel-catching business, Maine is where it's at. Fishing for American eels is illegal in every other East Coast state except for South Carolina and Florida, where the fisheries are small. The demand for American eels skyrocketed earlier this decade, experts say, because the European Union banned eel exports in 2010. And high prices have led to poaching. In March, two Maine fishermen, Bill Sheldon and Timothy Lewis, were indicted for illegally trafficking wildlife. Sheldon could face a maximum of 35 years in prison. Our guest, Renee Ebersole, is a contributing writer for National Geographic and a reporter for the Food and Environment Reporting Network. Her article is entitled, Inside the Multi-Million Dollar World of Eel Trafficking. Renee, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. Why don't you describe, first off, what is a glass eel? Yeah, a glass eel is a juvenile stage of an American eel. So they start off in the Sargasso Sea where the adult eels spawn, and they become larvae. When they're in the larval stage, they look like little gelatinous willow leaves. And uh, as they drift along the coastline, they sort of they scatter along shores from Venezuela all the way up to Greenland. And when they enter the river systems, then they become glass eels. They're little two-inch long worms. They have really haunting eyes. You can see their spines. And after they enter the river system, they'll go through several more life stages until they reach the adult life stage. This early part of their story in the mysterious Sargasso Sea is what sort of leads to a bit of the mystery surrounding them. Can you just tell us about this place and the unusual origin of these eels? Yeah, it's an amazing large gyre uh, near Bermuda, the Sargasso Sea. And no one really knows where these eels are spawning in the Sargasso. They've narrowed it down to they're in this large gyre, but they haven't been able to figure out precisely where they spawn in these mass numbers. And because of that, 
no one is able to breed them in captivity. They need those little baby eels, the little glass eels, as seed stock for aquaculture farms. The people that you profile here, the, the traffickers inside the multi-million dollar world of eel trafficking, aren't the first to, to be indicted for, for this, but why tell this particular story now? Most of the indictments have happened in the last 12 months. Uh, there were seven people indicted in the fall in October, seven men in Maine who pled guilty. I think they had uh, pled guilty for trafficking $1.9 million in eels. It's big business. And then there were several more who pled guilty in South Carolina. And then a Brooklyn uh, seafood dealer who also pled guilty. And then most recently in March, there were two men in Maine who were um, indicted for trafficking eels, and both of them pled not guilty. So their trials are upcoming in the next couple of months. Describe the trafficking. What exactly is being done that's illegal here? This was an undercover federal investigation. Uh, It was multi-agencies, multi-states, and they called it broken glass. And what happened was undercover federal agents were selling eels to buyers in places where it was illegal to sell eels. The buyers were shipping them to places where it was legal, and then they would mix them in with batches of legal eels and ship them to Asia. As you describe them, these are are very tiny, very slippery little creatures. Uh, How exactly do you fish for glass eels? It's really pretty cool. They um, They have these giant fike nets, they call them. They face downstream so that as if eels are swimming upstream at high tide, uh, they enter these fike nets and they are funneled into a little trap at the end of them. The eels get caught two times a day at high tide and then the fishermen can check their nets at low tide. The other way they're fished uh, is just simply with a $5 dip net. One of the people I interviewed said it's really a perfect fishery for the little guy with a pair of boots and a dip net. And it's so true because uh, a lot of these guys just go out at night. They spend all night long from dusk till dawn with a dip net, swishing it back and forth along the coast, standing on a rock. It's really hard work. The unusual piece of this, of course, is that these eels are are trafficked and they're shipped off to Asia where they're farmed and turned into the sushi industry. What? Why are we just farming for them here? Why isn't there a a big multi-billion dollar business springing up on the East Coast to to farm eels? The fishermen would love that, most of them. A lot of them talk about growing them domestic. Uh, Currently, there is no infrastructure for growing eels on the East Coast. These giant farms are very expensive, and all of that infrastructure already exists in Asia. And uh, there's also a problem with uh, some of the the legal use of um, the hormones that they use in these arms across um, in Asia. There's a problem because they use hormones, and the United States has not allowed uh, hormones for this. You know, they wouldn't. They haven't yet decided to use hormones for um, eel farming here. Uh, what happens is the eels are intersexual, so they can become either female or male. And the crowded conditions in the farms encourages them to become male. So they give them hormones, which makes them female, and the females are worth more money because they grow bigger and faster. 
You mentioned the fishermen who who do this legally, and I know you you talked to a number of them. Who who exactly are these guys? What what are some of their stories? There are people who were making you know on the off season they make their living painting houses and doing construction and digging for worms and clams, and you know they're lobster men. And when this fishery came along, they you know discovered this is a you know this is a great way to um, make some extra money. Prior to 2012. Their, the eel prices were, you know, quite low. There were periods of time when they were $30 a pound, $40 a pound. But then uh, when there was a shortage of eel in two, after 2010, the eel prices skyrocketed in, to two, uh, more than $2,000 a pound. So these guys who were making, you know, very low wages suddenly had the opportunity to make millions of dollars during a 10-week season. And many of them did. One fisherman told me the story about how he paid off his loans. He was able to pay off his house. I think he made $150,000 that year. The next year, in 2013, he made $200,000, and he bought his son a house. So it really changed lives. Do you or any of the people that you talk to see this as all one gigantic bubble? I mean, is the, is the eel bubble already set to burst here? I I think that as long as they're not fished all along the East Coast, I think the uh, Fish and Wildlife Service and the um, Atlantic Marine Fisheries Commission uh, are in agreement that the um, the pop or the fishery there in Maine is sustainable. You know they're closely monitoring it, but you know they had concerns if they were fished all along the East Coast. Then you know, and these remember these eels scatter everywhere. Um, they go up river systems everywhere. So uh, if they're only fished in Maine along these three major rivers, then and some of the brooks and creeks, then they feel that you know the species is in in good shape. But they're going to be monitoring it, you know, for the long run. Given what you've learned about eels and doing your reporting, do you do you ever go to a sushi restaurant and order eel? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I like eel. In fact, I went I went around the corner from the buyer I was visiting and got uh, an eel roll around the corner just to see. I wanted to know how expensive it was there in Maine, and an eel and avocado roll was selling for six dollars. Um, and it was it was really interesting to see the little tiny baby eels, you know, at the shop, and then go over to the restaurant and um, you know see it in Azunagi. The eel that I ate that day in Maine may have been caught in in Maine, sent to Asia, grown there, and sent back to that specifically that sushi joint, um, which is pretty cool. Renee, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. And thank you. Renee Ebersol's story was produced in collaboration with National Geographic and the Food and Environment Reporting Network. You can find a link on our website, nextnewengland.org. Whether you're catching eels swimming upstream or haddock in the Atlantic, the work of fishing can get pretty routine. On an early December morning, though, that routine was upended for one New Bedford-based ground fishing crew. Andy Short has the tale. The commercial fishing boat Hera is a dragger from New Bedford. Its nets trail behind it for thousands of yards, scraping the seafloor for haddock, cod, monkfish, and the like. In the early hours of December 15, 2016, the weather had turned against its small crew. It was time to pull the nets in. One of the first fishermen to sort through the catch was Ares Oliveira. 
peak in the pile, peak in the pile, peak in the pile. Aries speaks in threes for emphasis. He's a skinny man with a helmet of gray and black hair. 33 years of fishing have made his hands one size too big for his slight frame. He's a little hard to make out in this recording, so I'll be translating for him. And when you drop the bag, a lot of fish. When the nets hit the deck, he saw fish, crabs, and garbage, the usual. Then he noticed something strange in the sunlight. I saw a leg. Aries saw a human leg in a pile of fish, the right leg with a sock on it. So he calls his buddy over. First, I thought it was like a mannequin and all that stuff. I didn't see the head, nothing. I thought, okay, it's Barry in the pile. That's Carlos Amarin, first mate of the Hera. That leg, it had a body attached to it. So I started looking, looking with my fish pick. He had a belt on, and after I noticed, he had a tag on his ankle. So as soon as I opened him up, I saw the spine bones. I said, oh, it is a body. They covered the body with a big blue tarp, the kind you might rake leaves on in the fall. The captain reported their location and headed to the nearest port. While the hero was headed in, the case was referred to the state police. After handing the body over to the authorities, the crew washed the deck, threw out the contaminated fish, and went right back out fishing. For Manuel Magalesh, the captain of the Hera, the mystery of this body lingered. Three weeks or four weeks before, there was three Portuguese fishermen that have been gone missing in the Cape Cod Bay. So I'm like immediately thought, oh my God, that's probably one of those kids, you know? And then I'm thinking, well, at least we'll give closure to a family member, you know, to the family. Manuel tells me how dangerous fishing can be, how he's been lucky never to lose any of his own crew. The sea is littered with lost fishermen, he says. And the worst part of losing someone at sea is the uncertainty. Eleven days later, the state finished its investigation. The body was not one of those lost fishermen Manuel talked about. It belonged to the late Robert Carnavale, a doctor from Providence. And he was placed in the Atlantic on purpose by this guy. Uh, Captain Brad White, a founder of New England Burials at Sea based in Marshfield, Massachusetts. He started the business in 2006 by scattering ashes at sea. And now we're the go-to company uh, with over 180 different domain names uh, being East Coast Burials at Sea, West Coast. He added full body burials five years later. Brad is a dedicated entrepreneur. He sees opportunities everyone else misses. I hate to say this, but it started after bin Laden, the bad guy, got buried at sea. Our phones rang off the hook. So wait, so you so <laughs> did you start offering it when Osama died or after? Okay. After, because we got so many phone calls. And then I say, well, we don't know how to do it. So I went to the Boston Public Library. I studied it going back 200 years. I said, let's just replicate what they did. Let's gussy it up, polish it up, make it look great, make it feel great, and let's bring it to today's technology. Just like fishing, the tradition of sea burial that Brad gussied up is an old one. Vikings did it by laying bodies on small boats and using flaming arrows to light them on fire. Ancient Egyptians put their dead on rafts and pushed them out to sea. But Brad takes his cues from the way it's done in the United States Navy. The body is placed in a cloth bag. Then he has the family put cannonballs at the bottom of the bag. This anchors it to the seafloor. Before the body is deployed overboard, he fires a cannon off in honor of the deceased. He rings a bell eight times to symbolize the last watch. 
Finally, he sprinkles rose petals into the ocean as they head back to shore. So when a family comes to one of our vessels, we're ready to go, and it's showtime. So do you think of it like a show? I think of it as pulling it together, all the details, as if it's a, uh, an orchestration. It's the kind of orchestration that suited the Carnavale family well. His daughter, Carrie, was interviewed shortly after the burial in the Mercury, a Rhode Island newspaper. For the family, it was more about the unorthodoxy of it all than a deep connection to the sea. She said of her dad, he got seasick. He disliked the beach, but he knew that we all loved the ocean. If there's one thing Brad relies on, it's that his burials stay at the bottom of the sea. That's in direct conflict with a fishing industry that thrives on dragging up what lies below. Both operations questioned each other's practices. Was it done properly? Was it done in the correct area? And also, was this a good fisherman or a fisherman fishing in the wrong area? Here's Manuel, captain of the Hera again. They should make sure that uh, wherever they, they do those types of service, it's, a, it's an area that they're sure, absolutely sure, there's not going to be any fishing activity. This question of where the Hera was and when it was there is hard to answer. All sea burials need to be at least three miles offshore and in waters that are at least 600 feet deep. As far as the investigation is concerned, nothing improper was done on either side. Most likely, the ocean itself is to blame. The current, I'm told, can move entire shipwrecks, so what chance does one body weighed down with a couple of cannonballs stand? The family of Robert Carnavale didn't want to comment on this story. They'd rather put this to rest, and perhaps just remember the man they wrote about in his obituary. Dr. Carnavale was a cardiologist, a teacher, a storyteller, grandfather, brother, son, and friend. Not long after the state police closed the case, the Carnavale family picked up their dad's remains for a second time. He was cremated and scattered. This time, no nets or currents would bring him back. That's Andy Short reporting. His piece was produced at the Transom Story Workshop in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Coming up, a Mexican-born Vermonter may be facing deportation despite having authorization to work in the U.S. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. A Vermont father is facing deportation back to Mexico. Juan de la Cruz came to the U.S. illegally over a decade ago and later married a U.S. citizen. They formed a family and a farm business together, and Juan got federal permission to work here. But now, because of complex immigration policies, the father of six may be deported. VPR's Kathleen Masterson has our story. Back in 2005, Juan crossed into the U.S. illegally, making the week-long trek across the desert in search of a better life. After a brief stint working on an upstate New York farm, he was picked up by an ice raid and deported. But then he sneaked back to the U.S. a few months later. He moved to Vermont and met his future wife. Over the past five-plus years, the couple worked several jobs to save money to buy their own 20-acre farm. Laying hands in here, we have meat birds down below, we have pigs out back, and we have a couple beef cows in that side over here. Juan is married to an American citizen, Kirsten. They have two kids together and four children from Kirsten's previous marriage. In 2008, the couple hired a lawyer to start the long process to get a green card. 
Kirsten says about $20,000 and some years later, still no luck with the green card. They were eventually advised that Juan should simply continue to reside in the U.S. using the work authorization permit he'd obtained. Then, earlier this month, Kirsten says they went into the immigration office for their yearly check-in. I hadn't seen any cases around here where people were having trouble being detained when they're going in for check-ins, so we felt pretty confident that we were okay. And then we're sitting there in the waiting room, and the officer came in and said, you know, give your belongings to your wife. We have orders to detain you. And my heart and everything in my body just dropped. (laughs) Kirsten says the officer wanted to take Juan in that moment, but they begged for more time. They hadn't even told the children that they were going to an immigration meeting. Because Juan has no criminal record, Kirsten says ICE officials gave him 30 days to go home, wrap up his business affairs, and say goodbye to his family. What I don't understand is that they don't let me go in front of the judge, give me another chance. But Juan doesn't have a right to an immigration hearing in front of a judge. His case will be decided by an ICE field officer in Boston, says Matthew Colkin. He's the attorney the couple hired earlier this month. The officer has the power within his sole discretion to decide whether or not an individual will be removed through a reinstated order. That's because Juan had already been deported once, and that prior deportation order was reinstated a few years ago. Now ICE is acting on it. This process of reinstating old deportation orders and tracking people down to deport them is a legal procedure that was commonly used by the Obama administration. Then, in the last few years of Obama's tenure, the administration changed policies to prioritize deporting criminals and not separating families. Colkin says the Trump administration is reviving it. I feel like this is my home. I can't imagine going back. I've been gone for so many years that half of my, half of my life is I've been living in Vermont. And I... <clears throat> Juan and Kirsten haven't told the youngest children all the details, but they know their father may have to return to Mexico. Juan says sometimes when the youngest kids are playing, they suddenly remember what's happening and burst into tears. And Kirsten says their youngest daughter, who is five, is particularly upset and confused. She thinks that he's being sent back to Mexico because he's Mexican. And she'll look at her skin and she'll be like, well, I'm Mexican. And the older kids are like, yeah, but Isabella, you're American. Papa's not American. She doesn't get it. Kirsten says she doesn't know how she can support her six children without her husband. On top of running their farm, Juan works a full-time job as a butcher at Green Pasture Meats. And Kirsten runs a daycare. She rattles off all the financial worries that she's facing with the potential loss of her husband's income. But when it comes to the personal loss, she doesn't have words. To be honest with you, I haven't. I can't face it. I can't go there. I'm trying so hard. Izzy, do you want to go play for a minute? Kirsten says she's trying so hard to hold it together for the kids. She says she wasn't even able to write a letter of support for her husband, the officials, like so many others in the community have done. And I haven't been able to do it because I can't go there. I can't start to think about every detail of our life in the past years, and I don't want to do it without him here. Their lawyer, Matthew Colkin, is trying another tactic to protect Juan. Things are looking grim at this point. That being said... My client has expressed a, uh, a reasonable fear of return to his native country. Juan fears that if he were to return to where his parents live in Tabasco, Mexico, he could be kidnapped or harmed. 
the law requires that he have the opportunity to present his case to an asylum officer, who then will decide if the concerns merit further hearings. That's the only thing we ask him for. <clears throat> have a second chance so I can go to court and present my case. Juan's lawyer says an asylum hearing is being scheduled in the upcoming weeks. That's Kathleen Masterson reporting. Life often inspires art, and art, in turn, can reflect society. In a time of divisive political discourse, especially around immigration, an art show currently featured at the Boston Institute of Contemporary Art opens up a space for dialogue. The exhibit offers museum-goers a glimpse into the naturalization process and what it means to be and to become an American. Shannon Dooling visited the exhibit and has our story. One of the first things you notice when you enter Nary Ward, sun-splashed, is this beat. The sound activates your senses right from the beginning and sort of suggests that this is a living exhibit, one that invites you to take part. Several pieces speak directly to the artist Nary Ward's own experience as an immigrant to the U.S., including what's called Naturalization Drawing Table, It's a permanent part of the show, but it's only activated a few evenings a month. The work is meant to simulate what it's like to become a U.S. citizen. Partitioned off from the rest of the exhibit, people wander over, checking out what's behind the wall. Museum staff explain it's part of the exhibit. Folks agree to take part, and then this. Okay, please step forward to line one and wait for your photo to be taken. Step against the wall. Please remove any jewelry from your right ear and please take off your glasses. Staff continue delivering instructions with not so much as a grin. Your photo is taken. You're shuffled around a bit from one line to the next. And then there's a form to fill out designed by the artist. ICA staff who've been trained as notaries document the process with an official signature. Your picture then joins a collage of others and becomes part of the traveling exhibit. The whole thing feels a little awkward by design. Yeah, I wasn't really sure where I was supposed to be standing and what I was supposed to be doing, and in that way it was really similar to the DMV. Andrea Gotchis of Norwood, Massachusetts, allowed us to tag along with her while she stepped into the naturalization experience. After having a few moments to reflect, she says the exhibit took on a personal meaning. I have a family member who's going through the naturalization process now, or would like to, he's, he's applying, and um, and just thinking of how high the stakes are for him, and I'm a little bit shaky, actually. (laughs) Yeah, that was more powerful than I was expecting, actually. When the ICA's curatorial team first saw Ward's show almost two years ago in Miami, they knew they wanted it in Boston. Curatorial associate Jessica Hong says given the country's current conversations about immigration, the show feels especially of the moment. Of course, you know, with the political climate, it kind of did take this additional resonance, which we felt was an incredible, incredible opportunity to really engage in these, you know, difficult but important dialogues. And that's exactly the vision of artist Neri Ward, who says dialogue is the best outcome for this show. I think that's the key part, that any of the objects that I create is really how to bring up an individual experience, an individual kind of point of view, but then how to create a space for everybody's experience or everybody's engagement to be just as valid. 
Some of the pieces in the show were made more than 10 years ago, so the conversations they inspire today are different than they may have been when the artwork was created. But Ward says that's kind of the point, to keep challenging individual perspectives and assumptions around a number of topics, including immigration. Ward and his family emigrated from Jamaica when he was 12 years old. He spent most of his life in the U.S. as a legal permanent resident, but several years ago, he decided to pursue U.S. citizenship. Ward says it was a process marked by both anxiety and hope. That is in the work as well, that that transition and that notion of feeling connected to a kind of American identity, but then still feeling a little bit apart. And many of Ward's pieces play with that tension around American identity. Like this piece, We the People. Again, Jessica Hong of the ICA. So it's the first phrase of the U.S. Constitution made entirely out of shoelaces. Hundreds of shoelaces hanging at different lengths along an entire wall of the exhibit hall. At a distance, the phrase, We the People, is clear, but the colors are muted and the actual material is difficult to discern. But take a few steps closer, and threads of bright green, purple, and red, all of these individual colors begin to pop as the words themselves dissolve. Hong says that shift in imagery is intentional. The placement of your body is really important, and the different perspectives that one were to have, perhaps suggesting that democracy is not really visible for everybody, or the importance and the need to have multiple perspectives in society. When I look at the actual design of this, you know, installation, um, the colors to me represent the diversity of the people of this country. I think it says so much. Najla Alshambari takes her time with this piece. She notices the different lengths of the shoelaces, perhaps representing the varying time that different immigrants have spent in the U.S. A dual American and Saudi citizen, Alshambari grew up in Cambridge, but now lives and works in Saudi Arabia. She says she was drawn to this piece. It's not just the colors themselves that attracted me to to it. It's the actual statement that it's making. It's making a statement, and it's very inclusive. It's very inclusive. And perhaps not even the artist Neri Ward could have envisioned the significance of feeling included when he designed the piece six years ago. That's WBUR's Shannon Dooling reporting. Of course, we know that New Englanders have and always will have a rocky relationship with inclusivity. After all, the famous line from Robert Frost's 1912 poem, Mending Wall, good fences make good neighbors, is sometimes used to describe Yankee culture. But building stone walls like the one in Frost's poem has become something of a dying art. Stonemason Thea Alvin explained to Vermont Public Radio's Vermont Edition how she builds her walls without mortar. I always approach the wall as if it is a conversation. It's a dialogue between me and the stones. I look at all of them and see who wants to fit where and what space is open. And you're creating rows and levels and layers and details, just like a friendship would be in in relationships between each stone. And then you you come to a final height, and that will want to be solid and stable. And just the way that you see a brick pattern with two bricks down and then one across the top. You do the same with the stones, two stones down and one across the top. And that's called bonding. So if you follow that pattern and additionally follow the pattern of going towards the interior of the wall, then you'll build a strong wall. I should use gloves. I don't use gloves. I love to, to feel the stone. I love how, how the stones feel. I feel like I communicate with them and by touching them, I understand them better. 
I always start from the corner. When there's a corner on a double-faced stone wall, it's called the cheek end. And that will want to be nice and square and level because that's what you're going to see. And the corner really drives what happens in the wall. So we'll put a nice 90-degree angle on this side. I think that uh, there's a couple of square stones right here, and we'll use those for the corner stones. The part of the wall that you see with your eyes is called the face. And when I build a wall, I always work on it with my face facing the face of the wall, like a conversation that you'd have. So if your wall has two faces and you're working on one side, you need to go all the way around to the other side to work on it face to face, because you really can't fix something if you're not looking at it. The wall itself needs to obey three rules, water, temperature, and gravity. So your stone wall as a structure wants to shed water water happens a lot actually in Vermont and so we want the water to get out of the wall system so the way that you arrange the stone needs to shed the water away so ultimately you want the stones that you're laying to be flat and level or shed just a little bit out so let's look at these stones each one of the stones has a face it's got a top and a bottom so each one of the stones that we pick up we'll want to be in the orientation where the face is on the front let's lay them out on the string line so we have a straight line and we can create a straight line of where the the wall will be we want to shape the stones if there's any little tips let's cut this part off of the stone right here because it doesn't fit well against the next one I'm not going to cut on the front of it because I like the front to be really natural but the back is too big on this side so let's cut this part off and then we can lay the stones out so that they're all in a straight line. When we build the wall, you have to put something behind it. What would you put behind it? Because otherwise you have a lot of weak, floppy stones. So let's put some more stones. Maybe, maybe that one that's not so pretty. It doesn't have much of a face on it. We'll tuck that one in the back. A dry stone mason is somebody who builds stone walls without mortar. And uh, that's what I'm doing now is building stone walls and stone sculptures without mortar. So that has been in evolution for the last 30 years as I've learned to shed the mortar and just trust gravity. VPR's Amy Noyes produced that piece for Vermont Edition back in August of 2014. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Kion Wolf at WNPR and NPR in New York. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Also, thanks to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.